2: Pleasure to be here, Cheryl.
0: It really is a pleasure. I've been super excited this morning about our conversation. We met very briefly. um, I think it was around your first book at an industry awards dinner. You've Uh, got an
2: excellent memory.
0: (laughs) We were on the Random House table back then, before it was Penguin Random House. Ah, of course. Yeah, Yeah. I was a
2: bit like you know the deer in the headlights. You would have been shortlisted, looking over my shoulder. What
0: happens next? (laughs) And. Nine books later, here we are sitting down to talk.
2: I know, it's quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Now, let me introduce you first. Nicole Alexander was born and raised on her family property northwest of Moree, on the Queensland border, and spent a number of years working in Australia and abroad in financial services and fashion before returning to her family's property in the early 90s. She is currently the business manager there and is also a best-selling author with her novels. um, She writes poetry, travel and various articles. Uh, She's published in Australia, the US, Germany and Singapore. This is Nicole's um, ninth novel, as I said, and most recent. It's called Stone Country a sweeping historical tale of adventure, desire and determination set in rural 19th century South Australia and the Northern Territory. Um, So it's a varied life, isn't it?
2: It's a very varied life and I'm sure that, you know, you never know where your path is going to lead you, basically. I know when I was about 16 I said to my father... You know, I've had enough of boarding school in Sydney. I'd just rather sort Is of. Is that it.
0: where you went? Did you yeah. go to boarding school? Which boarding school?
2: So I went to Abbotsley on the North Shore.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, because where
2: we're located, we're about 110 kilometres northwest of Moree between the towns of Bumai and Mungandai. So to put it in perspective, we're actually about an hour and a half to the east of Lightning Ridge, if you take the back roads. So we actually wow. had, um, we did correspondence lessons. So mum used to teach In us around, primary. Yeah, mum used to teach us around the dining room table, which was fabulous because you get all your work done. You know, we try and get it all done by lunchtime so we could just go out the back door into the bush.
0: Yeah, that's extraordinary. You know, I, I have seen footage of that, of children um, being educated remotely. We have um, quite a few um, uh, international listeners. So I think that that is so unique to Australia, isn't it, the outback and being taught at home via radio transmission, isn't it? Is that how it used to no, be? No,
2: well, we actually received our lessons through the mail from Blackfriars Correspondence School in Sydney. Yeah. They came through basically sort of, you know, every fortnight. Yeah. They'd arrive in the mail, all the kids, we'd all go, oh! <laughs> and then, obviously, Mum used to teach us around the dining room table. So at the same time, she sort How of,
0: many of you?
2: So I've got two brothers and another sister... So at the same time, she's sort of running the household, cooking for jackaroos, helping men, dad, when they're coming in and out of the paddock and obviously going out to help out in the, you know, the paddock as well. So it was a fairly busy life for a mother at that time. My mother was actually a ballerina. So it was a real shock for her to fall in love and end up in the middle of nowhere. How did that happen? Well, she, um, wanted to, she'd been offered a job with Chips Rafferty to do continuity on one of his movies. Right. And her mother said, I don't think that's a very good idea, dear, because they're going to Papua New Guinea and they chop people's heads off there. And Mum was quite annoyed by that because she'd always been quite arty and creative and had done ballet for, you know, quite a number of years performing.
0: So she went, right, I'll do something totally different. So So was she from, where was she from? Sydney, Brisbane? Sydney, Middle Harbour area. Sydney, oh, right, what a shock. How did she meet a farmer?
2: So she actually took up a position to be a governess. In the Northwest. And that's how she ended up meeting my father, which was during a picnic race meeting, which is how a lot of relationships are established in the bush when yes. one comes in for these yes. social events. And it went from there and they didn't, they sort of met a couple of times. She came back to Sydney and a couple of years later, he actually rang her up and said, you know, would you like to go out? And I think mum was like, oh, the audacity of this man, you know, I haven't seen you for like <laughs> two years. Um, but eventually they got together and in the end, he proposed to her, in the meat house. Now, the meat house on an outback property is a separate building where you cut up, you know, the sheep and cattle that have been slaughtered for consumption. So, as mum said, it wasn't exactly the most romantic environment either. No, it wasn't.
0: For a ballerina. in <laughs> a ballerina, exactly. But, you know, they were married for 55 years, so yeah, it worked. Yeah, it worked. So, okay, so, t- I, I mean, I'm loving this. Describe, um, firstly, you use the word jackaroo, which I think maybe a lot of our listeners will know the meaning and a lot won't, so describe that. But also describe the setting.
2: Okay, so um, our property is totally flat. So it's bounded on one side by a creek and on another property by a river. So at one stage as we downsized recently, we had six holdings and so some obviously were crisscrossed by waterways. But yeah, it's totally flat country, it's floodplain country. There's a lot of um the timber on it is things like blar and different types of eucalypts, hardwood trees, etc. Um it's a lot of wildlife, kangaroos as well as feral pigs, etc. So it's a type of environment, for example, in the 1976 flood, we had a major flood that came through the area. The land's so flat that the water just totally engulfed the landscape and the water lapped the floorboards of the homestead for six weeks and we had a flood <gasps> boat tied up to the back gate.
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: So that's how flat it is. The water travelled very, very yeah. quickly. So. It's – growing up there, it's really like having – your boundary fence is a horizon because when you're on big places like that, your playground is the bush. So we spent our early years, you know, swimming in the creek and building go-karts and having terrible accidents trying to, you know, race them down the side of the dam, which is a large water hole with banks on the side. And, yeah, fishing for yabbies and that type of thing and, you know, we grew up. Riding and, and horses and motorbikes and had wonderful stacks off those as well. So. Yeah.
0: So what is yeah. it a shock for you when you went to, when you left the property and went to boarding
2: school? I think that we had those years being educated by correspondence and then I had two years for the local primary school to get used to, you know, having kids around me. Yeah. And then I came down to Sydney and I was actually so excited to see all these people. You know, yeah. it was quite extraordinary. It wasn't that, you know, I wasn't not used to Sydney because I had relatives down here. So I guess that wasn't a problem. But I was just really excited about having all these kids but it, that I could talk to and, and mix with, et cetera, having grown up, sort of learning to, um, you know, you're playing with your siblings all the time, basically. Yes. So it's quite a closed family environment. The thing that struck me immediately is that my life became totally conditioned by bills. Be able to get up in the morning, be able to go to each class, bell for lunch, whatever. And I yeah. found that very hard to get used to. Because it's such
0: a contrast, isn't it? Yeah,
2: and I felt very restrained in those first couple of years. And I, became, how old were you when you went to boarding school? I was eleven.
0: Yeah, so you're a
2: baby. Yeah, but still little. Um, So, yes, I felt very constrained in those first few years Mm. because I just felt my life had become so regimented. But then at the same time, I really enjoyed it and I was very...
0: Did you get homesick?
2: I Terribly homesick. Yeah. So when I actually went home for the holidays I used to just cry my eyes out at night time before I went back to school. But I was also aware of the opportunity. Yeah. As well. Yeah. And I really enjoyed my study and uh, you know, I I just had I had a great time at yeah. boarding school. It was wow. a wonderful experience.
0: Um and the boarding school experience in us Os- in well, New South Wales anyway, I don't know what it's like in other states, is that there are a lot of like people in the one area Um, because it's really, it's a lot of rural um, families that send their children to boarding school, don't they? Absolutely. So you do
2: have sort of this network of of, um, bush-based families that have their kids there. But then you have, like at school I went to, there's quite a large cohort of of day girls as well. And that's great because then you are getting that sort of. Um, intermingling of different backgrounds and attitudes, etc. Yeah. And I had quite a lot of good friends who were who were day girls. I used to and think in the back of my mind, it's only because I want to come back to the farm in the holidays. Yeah,
0: because I went I went to a boarding school, but I wasn't a boarder. I was a day girl. Okay. And we did. We went. That's what we did. We went to Forbes. We went to Cobar. We went to all those places where the boarders were. And it was for me. It was so eye opening. You know, yeah. I grew up in. In a Sydney glebe, like, you know, you couldn't get more urban than that. So taking the train out or driving out to these places was just so fascinating. An adventure. It was a real yeah, adventure an and adventure. so much fun. Mm. Um, okay. So, and did you ever think, so what did you think your life was going to be around there? Um, what were you working towards? Well, I decided I would want to
2: get into something involving marketing and that was a very loose sort of term at the time. I was already scribbling yeah. as well, trying to write. Um, so I actually went to university at Armidale and right. the idea was to do a Bachelor of Arts and it actually became a Bachelor of Party.
0: Oh, right, yeah, mm. of course. I hear that there's a... There's a party network around a bit, there. Yes, yeah. bit of a party network. Um, but I mean, it was
2: once again. I had obviously I had a great time. <laughs> yes. But when I finished university, I was like, oh wow. You know, yeah. the aim was to get into marketing, so I went and bought like eight textbooks on marketing, read up. on Even sp- though
0: you'd been at university for the
2: <laughs> read up on as much as I possibly could, and because I'd studied things like economics and whatever, so I yeah. had sort of concentrated yeah. on the marketing side of things, and. Um, and also done, like, archaeology, etc., and history. And
0: you were good at self-educating, so getting a couple of textbooks and learning yeah. about something was not new to you. No. So I, so I went into marketing from there, basically, and
2: then I ended up in Singapore for three years working over there. And when I came... So that was working for um, a fashion house. Yeah. Doing their marketing for them. And I've also done modelling and that type of stuff to, um, to you know, earn a few dollars on the side. And then when I came back to Australia, I was offered a job to do the marketing for, um, it was a marketing role with the National Trust. Right, wow. And I was very excited about this. So yeah. I rang my parents and my father answered the phone and I told him and he was like, right. I was like, Dad, aren't you like excited? You know, it's a great opportunity for me. And he said, well, the only thing I'm thinking about, Nicole, is that why would you go and work for somebody else and look after their old buildings when you can come home and work for your own family who's been here since 1893.
0: And look after their old buildings.
2: And I was like, okay. (gasps) So I said no to the National Trust.
0: Oh, wow.
2: And I went home. The idea being that I would, yes, do that for my dad because we had a very close relationship and I'd only stay for 12 months. That Mm. was about 23 years ago, Cheryl.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's an extraordinary story. See, I did not know that. Um what about your brothers and sisters did they did they come back my older brother um
2: no so he's sort of in the mining side of things and yes. always has been and i have a sister who's based here in sydney so she comes she back to the property, yeah. you know, occasionally, yeah. etc. But, no, that wasn't for, for her. Um, and then I have a, a younger brother who used to, who worked on the property for quite a few years and then he decided it wasn't for him either. So right. I was sort of like the lone one, God forbid, and I was a girl as well, yeah. you know, in a very yeah. male-dominated industry in the 90s when I went back. Mm. It took a long time. And
0: you were young,
2: yeah, I was young. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, it was it was interesting because I might have been the boss's daughter, but I was working in an all-male team, yeah. and it took a long time to be accepted. It took about eight years.
0: So this team reported through to your father? Yes, <laughs> So they're all
2: stockmen, et yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Okay, well, tell me about that. So you go back, you think you've got the job for work, well, you're going to stay for a year. Yeah. How does that work out?
2: I think <laughs> that the thing, I've decided that, um, first of all, I'd get set the office up properly. Yeah. Um, you know, my father, you know, typical bushman. he basically had things, all his paperwork and cardboard boxes, so, yeah. and mum wasn't allowed to go in there. So I set up the office and then I decided that I'd see, you know, find out how much I could do on farm.
0: And so what, what were you doing? Tell me a, a little bit about the business. So the
2: business back
0: then was mixed agricultural. So yeah.
2: we were producing um, Hereford cattle, yeah. Merino sheep, mixed cropping. So growing things like wheat, oats, barley, chickpeas, faber beans, sorghum, et cetera. Um, so it was a reasonably big enterprise, but the property had always been grazing-based.
0: Right, from the very beginning, so more livestock., orientated. and how many people does it take to run something like that? How
2: when I, yeah, well, when I first went went back, we had two full-time men, and then we would have contractors that came in. so yeah. when you ever had a when you had a big mustering job, et cetera, then you'd organize for men to come in and help on those you know really busy weeks, et cetera. Um, so those were the days when we used to do helicopter mustering of stock as well, so you'd have man in the air. Bringing the livestock in, and then we'd be on bikes or horses on the ground, and then trying to gather the cattle together to get them into a receiving yard, etc.
0: Very different to doing a bit of modelling and a bit of marketing in fashion in Singapore.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing that made me stay. Was- was the absolute challenge of it. The fact that I wasn't taken seriously, That and I heard one of the men actually saying to my father one day, oh, you know, Nicole will eventually head back to the latte set in Sydney. It won't yeah. be in her because she hasn't been here all her life. And yeah. my father said nothing. And yeah. because my father said nothing, I thought, well, maybe he thinks the same. Yeah. So that made me even more determined. So I actually made the effort to get out and learn everything, everything I could. Yeah. even if I couldn't quite physically do it all because obviously yeah. some of the work is very, you know, labour-intensive. Yeah. So I did that and I just kept persevering. And, you know, my parents would go away and Dad would tell me what was happening on any given day and the men would arrive at the house and I'd say, well, this is what we're doing and they'd just look at So you weren't
0: doing the role of your mum, you were doing the role of your dad. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how does an ordinary day look?
2: So an ordinary day then was um, getting up at about 5.30. Yeah. And, you know, we'd have breakfast around 7-ish. It depended what time we were starting. So usually we worked on the old pastoral ward hours. Right. So we'd start at 7.30 in the morning. You'd have lunch at, you know, you'd have morning tea or as we called it yes, so nine thirty, ten 30 10 o'clock <laughs> yeah you'd have an hour for lunch yeah and you never had anything in the afternoon so you basically worked through until about 5 o'clock until the job was finished so it could be anything you could be going you know driving out to one of the properties and just driving around and checking checking watering points the condition of stock um, the growing profile of crops, etc. if there's any weeds in them. If there's weeds then you have to get the agronomist in, the agronomist has to come out inspect the crops and then you make the decision if something needs to be sprayed with chemicals so the crop's clean for harvesting, etc. Yeah. It can be, you know, booking up contractors, um, yeah, booking up. Okay.
0: Yeah, so a so whole mix of things. It's really, it's, it's, yeah. it's big business, isn't it? It's huge, yeah. yeah.
2: So it's I really did everything from mustering on, on bikes to yeah. driving tractors, servicing tractors. I learned how to reverse a road train. Yeah. So, you know, these are handy skills for a gal Sydney, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> they
0: are real handy. <laughs> <laughs> real handy. Um, okay, so it's changed though, hasn't it? The role has changed on these properties. Tell me why and how it's changed. So,
2: um Recently, or a couple of years ago, my father became ill, so he had was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis. I'm
0: sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. thank
2: you. And so he made the decision to downsize the property, um, basically for the simple fact that it was a large holding and he thought it would be easier going forward considering it was only myself and mum yeah. um, that was sort of involved in the place and I have other siblings and they had to be considered going forwards. So we sold four of the six properties. We have two left. So I now go out there, you know, at least once a week. It's a 220-kilometre round trip. So I don't live on the holding anymore. I live in Moree. So it's about, right. yeah. So I do that, you know, whenever it's required. But and is it a because
0: farming has changed a lot too, that weather conditions have changed? I mean, have you seen the environmental impact on farms in Australia?
2: Absolutely. So... For me, I guess, the millennium drought, which went from about the middle of 2000 to 2009, was far worse than what I'm seeing now um, with this most recent drought, because it really only impacted on us a couple of years ago, compared to people further west of the state who've been sort of in in very dire conditions for seven or eight years now. But the millennium drought, yes... um, because you get so concerned about what you're going to do with your livestock, you know, you have to have an end point. So, yeah. you, so you have to say to yourself, well, if, if rain hasn't come by this point in time, I have to sell them regardless. Yeah. Or I have to have another plan regardless, even if rain's predicted for the following day. You know, you really have to stick to those management plans to stay in front, basically. And it is very difficult. And, yes, from an environmental um, perspective, I am very aware, um, it's a very fine line between the bottom line of a rural business and also being able to maintain the environment in a sound condition as well. Unfortunately, all businesses are run by the bottom, you know, their bottom line. So then that impacts sometimes on the decision making as well when clearly it comes to the environment. And I don't think I would be speaking out of turn for any listeners who might be based in the country when I say that. so yes it does become quite difficult. Mm. Our selling of the property so was mainly to do with with dad's health and what he wanted right. to see going forwards. Yeah. We sold the properties and then he passed away in in 2017. Oh, I'm
0: sorry. Yeah. Yeah,
2: which is very hard for me because he was my pastoral mm-hmm. history expert mm-hmm. as well, so
0: mentor friend and father. Yeah. yeah.
2: So when it actually came like my mother's Invaluable. She's my first reader with my works. But it, my father was such a fount of knowledge yeah. um, when it came to sort of writing my novels that I'd just sit down and say, look, Dad, this is what I'm writing about and this is what I've read. And he said, well... That's not right because it's such and such. And so I go back to a primary source material that was written in the 1900s, and sure enough, he was right.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, I want to talk about your writing because I think we've set the tone for listeners, and I've certainly enjoyed you setting the tone for me. But talk to me about when the writing started, the when and why. So, I grew up in a family of readers,
2: storytellers, living in the bush. Yes, I guess we watched TV to a certain extent, but it was all about sitting around the dining room table and Dad would just regale us with these extraordinary stories of, of bush life. So I guess that whetted my my appetite. The other thing that whetted my appetite is the settlement story of my own family. Yeah. So when my great-grandfather selected our land, he chose a site for the original homestead near the banks of the Whalen Creek and he overlanded, so he walked sheep from another property to the east, a couple of hundred kilometres to this new site. And he had two men with him, one of which was his brother. And those early days, so it's 1893 on the banks of a creek, and he, those early, early days were spent, you know, cutting timber and building fences and shepherding the sheep which they'd brought across with them. And Dad tells this story of, you know, the nights being extraordinarily long and the monotony really only broken on a monthly basis. By the arrival of the and supply rider, who used to okay. bring mail and you know other essentials out to remoter you know settlers, and one thing that was brought out to my great grandfather in 1893 in that first year was a copy of Alexander Dumas' account of Monte Cristo, mm-hmm. and he read that. Mm-hmm. I get really emotional thinking oh, about I, it because it's I am quite... already. I am <laughs> already. Because it's quite an extraordinary story. Um, yeah, so he read that by the light of a flickering candle, mm. basically. And he built this, you know, really basic one-room timber hut and then um, he stayed there for a couple of months, basically, and then the local Indigenous people in the area told him that that area was subject to heavy flooding. So he moved that site for the house a couple of um, kilometres further to the north and that was a homestead where I eventually grew up that mm-hmm. was built. But, you know, I just had this image of him reading this book in 1893 yeah. and, it's you know. a beautiful story. Sitting by this creek and mm. the moon, this full moon and the bush, like, stretching out around him in this really engulfing silence. And that's one of the things that got me thinking about, gee, I'd like to write about our pastoral history because it's yeah. just so extraordinary.
0: Yeah. Look, you, and we're running out of time already, but um, I want to, your books, I remember when I first met you and... Larissa Edwards gave me a copy, and it was really one of the first books that we, we've we now labelled Rural Romance. But it was more than that because the, it was authentic in a way because you actually lived and breathed it, didn't you? I mm. mean, you are one of the first to mm. be writing about relationships on the land, weren't you? Yes, absolutely.
2: It's interesting because I never set out to sort of like, I'm just writing this story about a generational grazing family. Um, so, yeah, for me it's been quite an extraordinary experience.
0: Yeah. So, you, so you're out there, you're running a business and you're pretty much, you know, it's, it's isolating as, as, as we've talked about and you decide as well as all the work that you're doing to write a book, right? H- how do you go about that? How did you go about that? Did you go and get a textbook on how to write a book? No, well, I'd written all the other things
2: and yeah, you know, been published travel articles and genealogy articles, etc. Yeah. Um but my first book, The Bar Cutters, took me eight years to write. Right, because I because it had an interweaving narrative, distinct time frames, etc. I wasn't sure how to put it together. Exactly. I was working full time. Mm. I was studying, having other things published. I wrote in the evenings and on the weekends, right. and I just absolutely agonised over it because I just didn't know. You know how how to construct the damn thing, um and then at the end, when I you know submitted it to an agent that I already had, and I'm sure she thought here's another one that wants to write a novel, yeah um, but yeah, it was sold within about three months, and it's just been extraordinary since then. I've never thought beyond the first book, I thought, well, I'll write this
0: and just see what happens, mm. and it just yeah, nine books later, nine books later. Uh, tell me about that. So, you're still, I mean, you, you, you know, you were working on the land to what what number book? I mean, you were still working, had a full time yeah. job. So, I had a full time job up until uh, the last book, Crown and Commonwealth. Oh, the last book? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, then that came out the year of my father's passing, and then I had sort of organised to have eight months off because yeah. I was just exhausted trying yeah. to do everything. Um, and then after that, I, we moved into Maury. We moved into Maury initially because Of dad's health and so I sort of went in there to to help care for him as well with my mother um and then I had the break and we had all the estate dramas etc and then I started writing and I'd already signed another two-book contract after An Uncommon Woman and then from there I decided well what am I going to write next I, I can't say that um even though I've had a little bit more free time in the last 18 months to write Stone Country it still remains the hardest book that I've written to date. Mm. It's quite extraordinary. I remember Brett Osman, who used to work at—I at know Brett, yeah—at yeah. Um, Random House. He said to me, "You know, you will really enjoy it, the process up until about, about book four or five. Um, He said, and then it, you know, it might get a bit pressurized for you. And I thought, well, I—it's remained the same for me. If, and he's probably right because it has got harder. But I think Stone Country, my interest in pastoral history is sort of 1900s to 1950s, up until, you know, the Woolburn period. So, and because we have all these archives at home because we're great hoarders as well, I usually delve in those for, you know, a lot of my novels where it's appropriate. But with Stone Country, because it was a different state, etc., I had to do a lot of research for that, and that's one of the reasons why it was a lot harder to write.
0: Yeah. we, um, I talked with Lee Child. I mean, we've got a podcast with him a couple of months ago, and he talked about the fact that, you know, it just it doesn't get easier with every book. It just doesn't. Writing is every time you start writing, it's yeah. the... Challenge for the first time, like yeah. Whereas most careers, you you know, even like you know, working on the land. I mean, you get familiar with things, and that it does get easier, or you're more practiced. But um, I yeah. think writing is like music; you've just always got to practice.
2: Yeah, and I think someone asked me at at an event last night if it put if it constrained you artistically to be on you know a, a book a year, basically, which I've been apart from that that short break. And I see the positives and the negatives of it, really. Um, basically because if you're on a book a year, you have to be so disciplined. You have yes. to be committed to your craft. Yes. And it's a great apprenticeship. Now, book nine, people might be saying an apprenticeship, but, yes, for me, I'm continually going to be learning for the rest of my life, I guess, as as far as the craft is concerned. The downside is that, yes, I get terribly stressed out because I know I have a deadline. But I also actually work better under stress, and I'm used to doing a lot. Mm. So the parcel eventually comes together. Mm. In so you the don't same way. sleep much. Um, I have to sleep because I'm, I'm an eight-hour sleeper. Yeah. But once I start writing, I just take the view I have to do five thousand words a week. Yeah, yeah. That's after I've done the majority of the research. So with Stone Country, I went to South Australia and the Northern Territory, and the research component was was massive. So I don't use any outside researchers. I always do everything myself. Yourself. Mm.
0: Nicole Alexander, congratulations. I mean, honestly, you're so impressive. I was, um, You haven't disappointed. I was really looking forward to this podcast and thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Cheryl. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This
1: podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.